you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 13. So we're going to begin looking this morning at this reality today that God dwells with His people. God dwells with His people. Um, as we think about that reality this morning, I thought about, you know, when we live with someone else, um, their presence doesn't always elicit the same response from us and ours for them. And yes, I realize I'm saying that this morning as someone who currently lives alone, but I haven't always, right? I grew up in a home with three other people, went away to college where I shared a very small space with uh, one other person I'd never met, and then, you know, a suite of rooms with other people. And then I returned home after that as I was going to seminary to live with my parents again. And what I know is this, and some of you this morning are sitting next to people that you live with. And so you can just pretend that you disagree with me this morning or maybe like blink if you agree. But I think we can all acknowledge that when you live with someone, their presence doesn't always elicit the same response. Um, when you're a person who needs some time in the morning, say, to get up and get your mind going um, before somebody else comes in and says anything to you, um, then an, the, another person wakes up with their mind and even their mouth going at full speed then that can elicit a certain response from you. Um, the same question, the same comment, whatever they have to say, right? It might be just fine an hour or two later, but not in that moment. And then, of course, the same thing is true on the other end of the day when the night owl is excited and ready to go and full of energy and the morning person just wants to wind down and go to sleep. The circumstances into which someone walks um, into our lives affects the way we respond to them, the way we receive what they have to say to us. And when we really know someone, we know even like the way that they walk into the room or the way that they start to speak. We know like, oh, this is going to be, you know, a more difficult conversation than others, or this is going to be a happy conversation. We know that by, just by knowing the people that we love and being around them and building a relationship with them. And when we look today at this unbroken reality that God dwells with his people, I think we see sort of the same thing, sort of, right? God called Moses to return to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And he made a promise to Moses, and then he made a promise to the people that he was going to go with them. As they went out of slavery in Egypt, then he would be with his people. And as the story of Exodus unfolds, we see how God's presence doesn't always elicit the same response from his people. Now, when that happens with us and our relationships with one another, we know that that's because on both sides, there's shared responsibility. On both sides, we are kind of a moving target as far as our moods. We can always be shifting, but as we think about it with God, we know that that isn't the case. We have a God who is unchanging, a God who is constant. As we saw last week, He is who He is. But we his people living in a fallen and broken world. We are the ones moving around. And so when God shows up in our lives, depending on the condition of our hearts and the circumstances going on around us, we know that his presence doesn't always elicit the same response. We see that in the story of Exodus here and hopefully in our lives this morning as we go through it. And so let's just begin to walk through Exodus this morning and see three responses that God's people had to his presence First, as we look at Exodus chapter 13, we see that God's presence is comforting. It's comforting. This we know, this is often what we're saying when we pray 
for someone when we say, Lord, just be with them. We're asking that he would draw near to them to comfort them and to just give them reassurance and peace in a difficult time, that he would lead them and guide them in the way that the 23rd Psalm describes. And we see that here in the story of Exodus as Pharaoh finally relents after the last plague on the firstborn of the Egyptians and the ensuing disaster. Finally, Pharaoh's hardened heart is softened and he lets God's people go. And as we come to Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, we read this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here." And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God dwells with his people, and he was here guiding them guiding them and leading them to safety. He knew they weren't ready. He says he knew they weren't ready to face the Philistines, even though it might've seemed like that was the most direct route to where they were going. That was the easiest way, shortest way for them to get where they were going. But what appears to us sometimes to be the most direct route or the fastest route isn't always the best one for us to take. I very well in my life may be a little bit addicted to Google Maps. I live in Sonora and so I drive on I-65 a lot, and I don't like to get on I-65 without checking the app. Not because I'm curious every day. I think that somehow there's like magically a new road has popped up and there's a better way for me to get home, right? It's not that. It's that I've been stuck in traffic on I-65 enough times that I don't want to experience that again, sometimes for hours at a time, right? And so I trust that Google will tell me if it's better for me to go home another way. Maybe not the fastest way usually or the most direct way, but sometimes it might be the better way. And I find comfort in knowing that I'm not just driving into this hour-long traffic jam. And so good guidance, when we know we have good directions and we know that someone's leading us and guiding us, that can be comforting. And here in Exodus, we see that God is doing that. He's guiding his people to safety. He's avoiding a situation that he knows they aren't prepared to face. And yet, he doesn't lead them to avoid all challenges because if we continued to read into chapter 14 this morning, then we would see that Pharaoh's heart was actually hardened once again and he came out after the Israelites. And in that moment, the Israelites weren't sure what to think or believe. They actually looked at Moses and they said, like there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you could have just had us die there and been buried there. You brought us out here in the wilderness. Now we're going to be defeated by the Egyptians. Now we're going to be killed out here in the wilderness. We, all of this, we just did it for nothing. We were better off where we were before. The Israelites' journey out of slavery wasn't this picture-perfect story where they never questioned or doubted what was happening. It isn't a fairy tale. It's reality, and they had low moments that we see in chapter 14. But by the end of that chapter, after the Red Sea had been parted and the Israelites had been led across on dry land to safety while the Egyptians had been led to defeat, 
their response was no longer doubt or confusion or questioning. Instead, they were comforted and they were reassured by the presence of God. We read in Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. When Israel saw God show up for them in power to rescue them, they believed in him. They trusted him. They were no longer asking if God brought them out there to kill them. They were trusting that God was working for their good, even when it seemed impossible, even when it seemed like they were stuck. God's presence is comforting because his purposes and plans for our lives are always good, even in the midst of trouble. He's guiding his people to safety. One thing that's clear here in Exodus 13 and 14 is this, that Israel, they weren't able in this situation to save themselves. We see they're stuck at one moment trapped between their oppressors, the Egyptians, the army of Pharaoh, and the sea. They had nowhere to go. And it appears that they'd follow the Lord and the pillar of cloud and this fire by night. It appears they'd followed him right into their demise. But in reality, God was leading them to salvation as they trusted him and followed him. And so in the end, his presence did bring them to peace and to comfort away from the threats that had plagued their lives for generations. And so what we're talking about ultimately this morning as we look at the story of the Exodus, what we're talking about as we think about God's presence is really God's grace. It's his grace. When his people could do nothing to save themselves from the hand of Pharaoh, God came down, not because they had it all together. God came down and guided and reassured his people because of his unfailing love, because of his goodness, because of his character, so that when they would look back on what happened, they weren't pointing to the fact that they had this great plan to outsmart Pharaoh, and they had this great plan to defeat the army of the Egyptians. No, they were pointing to the power and the presence of God and the impact that God's grace had had on their lives, and they were praising God because of what he had done. They found comfort in the presence of God because he was guiding them. He's leading us, even when it doesn't feel like it, he's leading us to safety. Second, as we look at the story of the Exodus, though, we see that God's presence sometimes is overwhelming. Sometimes it's overwhelming. As we kind of move on to chapter 20, we see this. Have you ever met this morning? I wonder if you ever met someone like truly famous, like somebody at the top of their game, like A-list celebrity. I really haven't. Um, not sure this really, this certainly doesn't count as actually meeting somebody. The closest I've come to that was once that I was walking through the streets of Boston on the north end of Boston. I was visiting some friends there and we're walking down the street and I looked into this Italian restaurant, open window, and on the second row of tables, I saw Derek Jeter, the great shortstop for the New York Yankees, just sitting there in the restaurant eating dinner. It was his final season with the Yankees. Actually, it was during his final series that he played with the Yankees. And I was just, like I said, just walking down the streets. I looked in and there's Derek Jeter. And so as we walked by, I didn't really want to make a big scene because I know he's just there eating dinner, right? He doesn't need a big scene to be caused or he doesn't want me to come talk to him. But I wanted somebody to be able to corroborate my story at the same time. So I said to my friends after we got by, I was like, I think that was Derek Jeter back there in that restaurant. And so we did what you would naturally do. We turned around and walked back again so that they could confirm that I had in fact seen Derek Jeter sitting there in that restaurant. And so we walked by again. They confirmed, right? Yes, that's him. So then we were kind of in this weird situation, though, because we'd walked by twice. 
but we needed to go the way we were going to start with, right? So we had to turn around and go back in. I'm pretty sure he saw us walk by the second time because when we walked by the third time, we made eye contact and he kind of gave me this look like, come on, man, like just trying to have dinner here. Like, be cool, just go on about your day. And so we kind of came to an understanding at that point, and we just went on about our, our weekend at that point. I didn't know really honestly at that point what to do. It was a little bit overwhelming at that point to see someone that I'd seen playing baseball on TV my entire life. As I was growing up, I'd watched him play. I watched him win five championships with the Yankees. I knew he was one of the greatest shortstops of all time, but he was also just sitting there eating dinner. And so I was struck, I think, at that moment by this juxtaposition of somebody of such distinction also just being so near. You may remember from Exodus 3 that God promised Moses that when the people were free, he said, you'll serve me on this mountain. And as God promised, we see in Exodus 20, they came to that very mountain. And as they did, God again drew near to his people. But this time, we see the people, they're trembling in fear. They're overwhelmed by the presence of God. They came, God came near to them here in Exodus 20. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He gives them laws by which they're to live, laws that are going to set them apart from the people around them, and laws that are going to show the people around them that these people are worshiping a different God. They're serving a God who is different from the gods of the other nations. And so Moses hears these commandments, and then look at what happens in Verses 18 through 21 of Exodus 20. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Why is God's presence overwhelming at this moment? The obvious answer is everything is on fire and there's thunder and lightning. The mountain itself is on fire. But 19, verse 19 tells us why the people were afraid. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Don't let God speak to us lest we die beholding the holiness, the distinctness, the glory of God. They saw what we know from Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet Moses assures them that God's goal, God's presence is not there to bring their destruction, but to preserve them, to keep them from sin. He says God was actually working so that they would not sin, so that by beholding the holiness of God, that they would actually come to reflect the holiness of God. God's presence is overwhelming to us, though, because his holiness shows us our sin, but it's also overwhelming for another reason. The encounter continues here in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 22, and it says, "'The Lord said to Moses, "'Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, "'You've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. "'You shall not make gods of silver,' to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for, me for, make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. 
You shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So I walked through the streets of Boston, right? Derek Jeter was sitting right there, but the truth is our worlds didn't really even overlap. Momentary proximity with someone doesn't make us close to them. But that's not what we have with the God of the universe. It isn't momentary proximity, but it's his perpetual presence that builds trust with him. God reminds Moses, the people, he's talked to his people from heaven time and time again, that the very real divide that they sense between his holiness and their sin that we sang earlier, how great the chasm that lay between us, that is real, but God is committed to closing it. And he says that in every place where he causes his name to be remembered, he will come to them and bless them. This is in a world where gods were viewed as regional, gods of this nation or gods of that nation. Every nation had their own gods and God's saying the boundaries of the nations of the earth, the barriers that we see, they are not boundaries and barriers to him. He's not confined by anything that confines us. His presence is overwhelming because he's infinitely holy. There is no God like him and he has come near to dwell with his people so that there's nowhere that we can go that he is not with us. Again, we're talking about God's presence, but we're also talking about God's grace because it's God's grace that his holiness and his law would reveal to us where we fall short, where we are in need of his mercy. And it's God's grace that in our sinful state, God draws near to those who remember him, to those who believe in him. We know Romans 3.23 by heart, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We quote that often, but that's not even the end of the sentence. As Paul writes, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's presence is overwhelming as we think about the glorious and holy God of the universe coming near to us who have fallen. The people were afraid that God's presence would mean their death, but they're reassured God has come near to save them and to redeem them. God's presence can be overwhelming. Third, we see, though, that God's presence is convicting. God's presence is convicting. As the story goes on, God confirmed his covenant with Israel, and Moses received more instructions by which they were supposed to live, more laws that were going to set them apart from the people around them, intricate detail for how they were going to build a tabernacle in which God would meet with the people, but the people grew impatient. As Moses was on the mountain hearing from the Lord, they grew impatient waiting for Moses to return from the mountain. And in Exodus 32, one through six, we read about where that impatience led them. We read of their sin. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, He built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day 
and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They'd committed themselves to the Lord's covenant. But when Moses didn't return with the tablets and the law on their timetable, they broke the covenant with the help of Aaron, who should have been the one reminding them of their covenant, reminding them that God had miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Instead, he actually has more ideas for them. He actually helps them invent new gods to worship, gods that could do nothing for them because they were as lifeless as the metal from which they were crafted. And so the God who delivered them was just willingly traded in just the span of 40 days. That's all that Moses was gone up on the mountain, 40 days. And they traded the God who had delivered them and rescued them, had parted the Red Sea and led them across on dry land. They traded that God for a golden calf that was made out of the gold that God had given to them. Their failure, their sin, their rebellion is disastrous. And we see in this chapter that their fallout of it is dramatic. God's wrath burns hot against his people in their sin. But we see Moses interceding on their behalf so that God doesn't totally destroy his people whom he'd rescued. And even then, though, we see these consequences that are great, ending with chapter 32 with a plague that God sends upon his people for making the golden calf. We see that God's people sin greatly against him. But we also see, as we go on to chapter 33, how God's presence is convicting in the lives of his people. It says, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Notice what's happening here. God doesn't say to the people, no more promised land. No more promises. It's all over. You're through. I'm just done with all of, I'm done with all of it. You're through. That's it. God says, I promise you the land. You'll have the land you won't have me. And they recognized in that moment what a disaster this was. They're truly broken mourning, stripping themselves of their ornaments. And from this moment, we see the people in this posture of brokenness as they realize the full cost of their sin. It was the one thing that they could not afford to lose. If they had everything else, but they didn't have the presence of God, then they had nothing. And so again, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. It says, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is, 
is your people. And in response to Moses' prayer, the brokenness of the people, we see God answer in verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Right? Why is this moment so convicting for the people? Right? Why does it get their attention? Why does it change the direction of their hearts so dramatically? Why this huge shift that we see, we find out in verses 15 and 16. As Moses speaks again, he said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses recognizes here, the people recognize it's all of God's grace that they were brought out of Egypt. It wasn't as if they devised a foolproof plan and overpowered Pharaoh's army. It wasn't anything in them that set them apart from the people around them, from the nations around them. It was God going with them that made them distinct, that made them a holy nation, a people for his possession. And so from every other people on the face of the earth, they were distinguished by the presence of God. And it was God's presence here in this moment, actually the prospect of losing it, that convicted them, that convinced them of that truth, that God's presence is convicting. He confronts us at times with our sin. He leads us to repentance, and then he pours out his grace upon us, as we see him doing here in Exodus 33. It's because of God's grace, even, that he would convict us of our sin, that he would come to us and let us see that we are broken and that we are in need of him, right? God would be justified in this moment in removing his presence from the people, even in destroying them because of their sin. But instead, he speaks to his people and he comes near to them in a way that leads them to restoration, that leads them to repentance. And just as he said he would, we see God continues at the end of Exodus 33 to dwell with his people because that is who he is. It's what he does. God dwells with his people. God's presence, more than all the promises, all the blessings he's poured out upon them was the greatest need of his people, and his presence remains our greatest need. Thankfully, we can say this morning that in God's unbroken purpose, he still is a God who dwells with his people. He's a God who dwells with us. John 1.14 speaks of Jesus coming to dwell among us. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to rescue us from the slavery of our sins, to accomplish our redemption. He lived a sinless life, died a criminal's death. He was raised on the third day and then ascended into heaven. He took our place in death so that by believing in him, we can have the life that he has won for us, everlasting life. But even Jesus going to the Father's right hand as he's ascended into heaven, even his going there has not left us alone. It has not left us without the presence of God because he promised us before he went in John 14, 16 and 17, he said this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. We have a God who dwells with his people and his spirit, his presence is a comforter to us, a helper to us, to those who know him, his spirit, his presence. At times it's overwhelming to us as we think about 
all that he is doing in our lives as we look upon the glory of Jesus and we think about who he is, that he would come near to rescue us from our sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 says this, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God's Spirit dwelling in us leads us to look to Jesus in faith, right? In the midst of a world that is broken and chaotic and crazy, in the midst of our own confusion, the temptation that we feel pulling us away, God's Spirit leads our hearts to look to Jesus, and to behold him, and to be transformed more and more into his image. That is the work of the Spirit dwelling within us. It's God's grace that is sinful, broken people. He leads us to faith in him and transforms us to be more like him. And God's Spirit, his presence, it's also, though, convicting. That continues today as well. John 16, 7 through 11, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit of God is is at work in the world today, convicting people concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, breaking through the darkness of our sin and our brokenness with the glory and grace of Jesus. God still is a God who dwells with his people. This morning, if you are among his people, then the first question as we close is this, what is your response today to God's presence? Because in a world that's filled with chaos, brokenness, and twists and turns, God's presence could lead us to respond in a number of ways. This morning, do you need to just rest in the comfort of God's presence that he is leading you and he is guiding you, that he sees everything that's going on and that he is working to bring about his plan and his purposes? Or today, maybe you're more overwhelmed than you are comforted by the presence of God as we sang earlier, right? How great the chasm that lays between us, how high the mountain you could not climb, right? And yet, we have a living hope that Jesus has torn through the shadows of our souls, right? That is overwhelming truth, God's presence in our lives. As we close in a moment, we're going to continue to sing and worship. We can express perhaps maybe a small part of the overwhelming response to God's presence as we sing together this morning. Or maybe even today, right, among God's people, God's doing a work to convict us of sin and to call us to repentance. And as God moves among us today, may we move accordingly in our lives to respond to him in faith, to turn away from our sin and to turn our lives over to him. God dwells with his people. That's good news for those of us who are among his people, but perhaps the most important question this morning is, are you among his people? Today, as he 
convicting you of your sin and showing you like you've never seen before that you need a savior, that you need Jesus to come into your life and to set you free from your sin. If he is doing that in your life today and in your heart, then I would encourage you as we sing in a moment, as we respond, as we go out after the service to to respond as God is leading you. I'd love to talk more with you about trusting Jesus or about following him in baptism this morning. Are you among the people of God? If you are this morning, then you have the promise, the reassurance, and the comfort of knowing that God dwells with his people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you And we praise you today for for this unbroken truth, Lord, this reality of who you are. You're a God who dwells with us, a God who dwells with your people. Lord, as we gather here this morning in your name to proclaim your, your greatness and your grace, Lord, as we come together to hear what your word has to say to us, Lord, we trust that you are with us, Lord, and that you are moving among us, God. And we pray that as you move among us, Lord, that by your spirit, you would move within us. Lord, that you would move powerfully within each of our hearts this morning, Lord. Convicting us of sin, Lord, overwhelming us with your glory and with your grace. Lord, and comforting us by your presence as you lead us and you guide us in our lives, Lord. We pray that, you, that we, you would give us the faith today to trust you and to follow you this week as you lead us and guide us, Lord, to talk with somebody about who you are and the grace that you've shown to us, Lord, to share the good news of Jesus with others, Lord. Pray that you would give us the faith to follow you as, Lord, as you lead us through difficult days, Lord the faith to to trust you, Lord, in the midst of family strife and difficulties, Lord, the ability to trust you in the midst of grief, Lord, the ability to trust you in the midst of um, sickness and illness, Lord. We pray that you would give us the faith to trust you and to follow you, Lord, knowing that you are a God who dwells with us and a God who is leading us even when it doesn't feel like it, God. We pray that you would help us to cling to that truth and to respond as we sing this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.